we know where we came from we know why we're here yeah. now where are we going I'm, I'm still conflicted with that one me I'm gonna I'm gonna probably uh The old story, Helen, a handbasket. I don't know. Probably drift off into uh, another world, another spirit land, I guess. That's I'm really going to heaven when I die. I don't think I'm going any, any further than probably four feet under. <laughs> there was a while you would have asked me maybe two years ago. I would have told you that on... Still to this day, I still kind of believe this. It's a Buddhist principle that I think we keep coming back here. <laughs> Who's to say that a grain of sand that exists on that plot of green grass over there at some time in the past has not been a living creature or will not be a living creature in the future? Uh, well, according to what everybody tells, your soul goes to heaven or hell and your body goes to the dust. So I do believe there's a soul and I would want to go to heaven. So just do as good, as much good as possible in life so that you don't have to go to hell or anything. Out of all the questions we've asked, I think it's clear that that one presented the most challenges and produced the most confusion. And uh, we want to answer some of life's most significant questions this morning. That's what we've been doing in our, in our series, Reasons We Believe. And so I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are walking down the aisle here. And you can just slip your hand up in the air. We want to make sure a Bible gets into your hand. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to pick up a little bit where we left off. And we're going to be flipping through a number of different passages this morning. And as I mentioned, every religion is seeking to answer life's most fundamental questions. That's what we've been striving to do. How did we get here? Why are we here? And where are we going? In other words, we're going to focus this morning on the question of what comes next? What happens when we die? Is there something more to this life? And we begin back in Romans chapter 1. And by the way, if, if you're visiting here for the first time and you haven't been with us in this series, we'd encourage you. We've been kind of building a foundation, each question building upon the next. And so if you want to go back and listen to the last couple of weeks, that would really help you uh, wrap your arms around where we've been going in this series. And specifically, it would help even bring this morning's message to light. But we want to encourage you. We believe that the Bible has answers to this most fundamental question of what happens next. There is a, an overall flow to the storyline of the Bible, and, and an overarching narrative to what's taking place from cover to cover in the scriptures. Theologians have kind of drawn up four different buckets to help us get our mind around the flow of that story, and it begins the first bucket with creation, follows by, followed by the fall, and then moving towards redemption, and finally towards restoration. And this is the, the narrative of the Bible from cover to cover. And the Bible begins by stating that God spoke into existence all of creation. And we looked at that question in depth in our first study in this series a few weeks back. And we saw that the Bible makes it very clear that God exists, but revelation, natural revelation tells us that God exists. And Romans chapter 1 makes that very clear, saying in verse 20 that Ever since, see, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, God has made himself known in all of creation. It screams the existence of God. But we dug down a little bit deeper to show that internally there is a testimony in our soul that screams the existence of God. That every one of us, because of the existence of morality, because of this understanding of a transcendence, that something is out there beyond us, Ecclesiastes 3 teaches that God has put eternity in our hearts. Our soul cries out to know God and to believe in God. And last week, we looked a little bit more in-depthly at why we're, we were created. See, while the Bible begins by telling us that God created us, it also tells us why we were created. And the story of the Bible tells us that as God created everything, he paused and he said, it is good, it is good. And then when he got to the height of his creative activity in creating humanity, he looked and he said, this is very good. 
mankind created uniquely in the very image of God screams to us what the rest of the Bible tells us is that mankind was created to live continually in God's presence, to have a unique relationship with God, to enjoy perfect fellowship with Him. Humanity was created to live forever with God in perfect, unbroken, joyful fellowship. But what we see in this kind of Bible narrative, that overarching story, is that what happened next was the fall. And in an instant, that perfectly harmonious relationship was utterly shattered. And all of creation suffered the consequences of man's rebellion against God. And so the the world as we know it is not the world which God created initially. Sin has entered in and it has cursed all of creation and now creation is distorted and unlike what God had initially designed. All of sin's effects now pervade our existence. Pain, tragedy, disaster, sickness and disease, abuse and immorality, evil and wickedness and above all, separation from God, both physical through death and spiritual through eternal death. And the result is that while we know the truth about God, that's what Paul has taught us in Romans chapter 1, all of humanity knows God exists. We see his creative power all around us, his character on full display through the things which he has created. We all suppress the truth of God and we reject the authority of God for we do not honor him and give thanks to him as we ought to. And then driving down one step further, our most fundamental problem is that we do not worship God, we worship instead the creation of God. In other words, our fundamental problem is rebellion against God by failing to worship God as God. This is the the plight of humanity. We looked last week at how sin is not simply just breaking God's law, but making good things ultimate things. In other words, it's an issue of idolatry. It's an issue of worship. Our hearts tend to worship things other than God, things made by God. Tim Keller said that sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from Him. And this is essential for us to understand the question, where are we going? Because if we understand the biblical depiction of sin, it begs the question, are there consequences for this rebellion? Not just temporary consequences like we believe there are, but are there eternal consequences for this rebellion? And if so, is there any way for us to avoid them? And so I want us this morning to think deeply about three biblical truths that help to elucidate this question, where are we going? And the first one is this, the justice of judgment. The justice of judgment. We cannot rightly understand where we're going unless we first understand the just judgment of God. Romans chapter 1 begins, we've looked at how humanity has rebelled against God, and one of Paul's primary goals in Romans 1 through 3 is to establish the guilt of all of humanity before God, to make sure that there's no one who's left without an excuse. Everybody knows that they have fallen short of the glory of God. All of Romans 1 speaks of an exchange that's taken place Three times that phrase is used as humanity exchanges what is right and what is true for what is false and insufficient. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They exchange the creator, the one who is worthy and deserving of worship for the creation. And three times we read that the result of that is that God gives humanity over. He gives them over. In other words, God looks at humanity who says, you would rather not worship me. You would rather worship the very things I have created. And it's interesting too, in idolatry, isn't it amazing that the things we worship tend to look an awful lot like us? And he says, fine, eventually that God's judgment on humanity is to say, fine, there's a temporary judgment and here's what it's gonna look like. You want what you want. You wanna pursue other gods. You wanna pursue the creation. You wanna pursue yourself, fine, have at it. You go after it and I will no longer restrain you. I'll no longer prohibit that. You go after it. 
And we see that this cycle is taking place in Romans chapter one, a spiraling out of control of greater and greater depravity as God gives mankind over to his sin. It pulls him further and further away from God. But this all flows out of Romans chapter 118. And we've looked at this verse already, but we haven't focused in on the very first words of this verse, so look at it with me. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This concept is incredibly important because it tells us, right, that that there are consequences to our actions, that if we choose to live in rebellion to the creator of the universe, we will face consequences. Every one of us will stand before this creator and we will have to give an account. Now, this is really troubling for so many people. Because while humanity loves and strives to live autonomously from God, he does not want to be accountable to God. And yet the two of those things cannot be separated. Humanity will one day stand and give an account to God. And most people believe that a God of judgment cannot also be a God of love. Everybody loves the concept, and, and even a lot of you know, non-religious people who, who maybe say they believe in God will tell you that their understanding of God is simply a God of love. God is loving, and the moment you throw this idea of wrath or judgment into the mix, it just goes against the grain of their soul. Right? They cannot just fathom to think of a God who can be loving and a God of judgment at the same time, and yet in Christianity, God is both a God of love and a God of justice. And like I said, so many people struggle with this. They believe that a loving God can't be a judging God. And I can't tell you how many times I have been asked something like this. How can a God of love be filled with wrath and anger? If he's loving and perfect, he should just forgive everyone and accept everyone. He shouldn't get angry. And here's what they're really saying. If you go underneath the surface of that statement, it's saying this. Why should anybody actually be accountable to God? Why can't we just live how we want, believe what we want? Who cares? if, If God exists, we shouldn't have to be accountable to him. And yet that's inconsistent with the way we live our life in so many ways. We believe that people should be accountable for their actions. But isn't it true as well that all loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath? Not despite of, but because of their love? Think about that, listen. Think about that parents or think about that spouses. As you parent, doesn't it fill you with some kind of anger to watch your child being mistreated by somebody else? Doesn't it it fill you with some kind of anger to watch the person you love, your spouse maybe, being wrongfully treated? Or, Or parents, how about this? How hurtful is it to watch your child even destroy their own life before your very eyes? And to fill you with this, yes, of sadness, but also a sense of, of anger. Becky Pippert writes these words. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath, she says, is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. See, the Bible paints this picture that God's wrath flows from his love and his delight in creation. God looks at his creation and he says, I love you so much and I see what sin is doing to this world that I have created and that I long to restore and it angers and infuriates him. You see, Romans 1 also makes it clear that there is an essential relationship between God's righteousness and God's wrath. You see, if God responded to wickedness with no more than some kind of a benign tolerance, as if it was somehow, well, it's okay, we'll just kind of let this one go attitude, his righteousness would be called into question. We understand this at a human level. You just think of the judicial system and a judge who's wearing the robes and holding the gavel who's been charged to uphold the law. 
and to punish those who violate the law, to give a just and righteous verdict. And we would look at any kind of injustice on a human level and say, that's not right. How dare he? He's not worthy of carrying that gavel or wearing those robes of the position that he's in. Because deep down inside, we, we long for justice too. And we long for justice to be upheld. We just don't like the microscope of justice to be turned on ourselves. See, we recognize that divine wrath is not the same as human wrath as well, don't we? That, that oftentimes is our problem. Sometimes we think that God is just like us, that somehow his wrath is like our wrath. You see, human wrath normally is a self-centered, vindictive, and intent on harming another kind of wrath. But God's wrath is so different than that. You see, God's wrath is his divine displeasure with sin. It is God's righteousness that demands that he punish sin. In fact, I want you to look over at Romans chapter 2. And and I want to maybe back up a little bit into the context here. You see, again, Paul has been building this case that everybody is guilty before God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. All of us fall into this category of being unrighteous and ungodly, and so we have this massive problem that needs to be dealt with. Look at verse 28 of chapter 1. As he's spelling this out, remember the, the downward spiral of sin, and he, he, he ends here with this, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what it ought not to be done. He said, hey, you want to have your sin? Go after it. See where it takes you. And where it took humanity was continually out of control. Verse 29 says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Well, what does that look like? evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Has it got you yet? How about this? Disobedient to parents. Guilty. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, You see, he gives all these categories to say we're all falling into this category of unrighteousness, of sinfulness, and though they know God's decree, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There's something deep down within us that recognizes sin as sin, something as being unrighteous and unjust. The only problem is we're great at pointing it out in other people, not so great at pointing it out in our own lives. And so look at this, chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. That's us. We love to point the finger. Look how sinful he is. Look how wicked she is. And the Bible says, look in the mirror. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Pattern of sin. He says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you, here it is, will escape the judgment of God? Do you believe that you will not be accountable to this God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Listen, so many people fall into this category right here. They presume upon God's patience. In other words, they look at their life And maybe some of you here, you're like, well, I'm really not that bad. If I was that bad, I mean, God would send a a bolt out of the air and strike me down, right? But my life's going pretty good. Things are going well. And, And you see, we presume upon the kindness of God, thinking that just because we're not experiencing God's judgment right here, right now, on the spot, which we deserve, by the way, that somehow God's okay with us and we're okay with God. And listen, the point Paul is making is that don't you understand? The patience of God isn't to say you're okay in your sin. It's to give you time to figure out you're not and to come to him through repentance. The reason, listen, the reason you have not died on the spot for your sin right now is because God loved you so much. He wanted to open your eyes to the hope of Jesus Christ. Listen, that is good news, isn't it? Some of us, some of us need to wake up to this reality. We, we, we sit here and we, right now, some of us are sitting here thinking, I'm okay, I'm okay. And God says, you're not okay. Look at verse five, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't you see? God's wrath is revealed in a present sense and that he lets us have our sin. He says, go for it. 
But there is a future day coming, you see, where we have stored up wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath where we will stand before God and He will finally call us to account. And He will render, verse 6 says, to each one according to His works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You need to see what Paul is saying here. God, whose judgments are absolutely fair and just, verse 5 tells us that, listen, will render to every person on that day of final reckoning what, that which is appropriate in accordance with his or her deeds. God will give each one of us what we have earned. And here we find a basic principle of divine judgment. God will give to each person according to what that person has done. You say, I thought Paul clearly says that a person is saved by faith. I mean, how does this fit in with that? And I'll just tell you, that's absolutely true. And a little bit later, Paul is going to affirm that a person in Romans 3.18 is justified by faith alone apart from observing the law. It's not about what you can do that can get you saved. It's not about what you do that will ultimately determine where you spend eternity. But in the immediate context, listen, Paul was not teaching how we are to be made right with God, but how God judges the reality of our faith, and that is a very different thing. In other words, and this is important if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, because Jesus was very clear that not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And you see, what Paul is saying is something very similar. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter what you say. You can say you have faith, you can say you believe in God, but at the end, listen, what will expose, what will reveal, what will test and authenticate the reality of your faith is how you lived in this life. Did your faith change you? If your faith hasn't changed you, listen, your faith hasn't saved you. That's what Paul is saying. God judges faith by the difference it makes in how a person actually lives their life. A.M. Hunter is right, I believe, in saying this. He says, a man's destiny on judgment day will depend not on whether he has known God's will, but on whether he has done God's will. You see, God's reaction to sin is not the anger of an emotional person overreacting. It is instead the necessary reaction of a righteous and holy, listen, and loving God. And our problem is that all of us, right, stand condemned. Not one of us can meet the standard of God's perfection. So the question that flows out of this naturally is, what hope do we have? Where do we turn? And that's our second point, and that is the solution of salvation. The solution of salvation determines where we are going when we die. And for that, I want you to see the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. So flip over there with me. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Again, this is a really powerful sermon that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's interesting. I, I had um, two conversations this past week over the course of about seven days, and I talked to somebody in our church who had a conversation with, with an individual, an unbeliever, uh, in this same week. In, in all of the conversations, there was a common thread. When we talked about faith, when we talked about beliefs, inevitably it got to this one spot where, where the unbeliever, the person who didn't, doesn't, is not a Christian, was just said, you know what? Well, that's great. What you believe is great and what I believe is great. You know what? We're all going to the same place anyway. If that's true, then let me just, let me just suggest that there is no point in having faith in anything. If all roads lead to the top of the mountain, then it doesn't matter what you believe. But I want you to hear the words of Jesus who confronted this idea of inclusivity. The culture says, just be inclusive, be tolerant, embrace every and any way, and don't tell somebody that their way is the wrong way. Certainly don't do that. Jesus says these words in chapter, in chapter 7, verse 13. Listen to this. He says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. 
and those who find it are few. All major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same things. That's what so much of the world would want you to believe. This belief is so common that one journalist remarked that anyone who believed that there are inferior religions is a right-winged extremist. If you're willing to say that your way is the right way or you have the better way, then the world wants to tell you that you're some kind of a nut. You're an extremist. You're crazy. You're intolerant. And this, can you see the contradiction in that statement? Everybody's way is okay except your way. Most people make, or who make this assertion, by the way, usually have in mind the major world religions. They certainly wouldn't look to some of those minor religions where they maybe say practice child sacrifices to appease the gods. Certainly nobody's going to look at those religions and suggest that they're somehow uh, superior or even on the same level. But even a superficial inspection of the major world religions reveals that they are so radically different from each other, and those differences are not insignificant, not in any way. And the issue at stake here is how any religions or worldview resolves this question. How do we deal with our sin before God? How do we deal with this knowledge in our soul that we are accountable to God? That one day, as Hebrews 9 teaches, everyone will die and stand in judgment of God. How do we deal with that? And I just want you to notice first that Jesus actually gives us only two options. He doesn't say that there are multiple religions to choose from, that there are multiple religions that get you to the same place. In fact, he draws a line down the center and he says, essentially, there are actually only two different options here that you can choose. And he defines these options. Notice he says, there is one that you enter by a narrow gate and another that is a wide gate. One way is easy, the other way is hard. One way is broad, the other is narrow. One leads to destruction and the other leads to life. And you need to see this, that at the end there is a waiting for everybody. The option of life or the option of destruction. The Bible calls this hell. A place of eternal separation from the blessings and presence of God. A place where I would submit, you get what you chose. You didn't want God here, you will never have him there. And that will be the most defeating, soul-defeating reality you will face. There's only two ways. And I just want you to see that the the culture embraces this broad road mentality, this idea that, that we can be inclusive of everything. And on the broad road, it's easy, right? There's no right or wrong. We all get to the same place. Do you see that mentality there? And by the way, you can just get in. We, we can walk together in this, and we can all get in together. Who cares what you believe? We're all going to the same place. And yet Jesus says there's actually only one way, and it's very narrow. And in fact, you can imagine it as a single file line because nobody gets in with anybody else. Nobody gets in on the merit of somebody else. Nobody gets in on the beliefs of other people. Nobody gets in simply because you're a part of a religious persuasion or background. You get in on your own individual standing before God. That's it. And and the, the gate is narrow and it's hard work because it costs you absolutely everything. Our culture wants us to believe that all roads lead to the top of the mountain. Find what works for you. I mean, we heard it in the video. Isn't isn't that amazing? Just, you know what? Just be as good as you possibly can and hope that maybe, maybe God lets you into heaven. Who here feels that they have been good enough to earn God's blessings forever? Just have faith. Have faith in something. Have faith in faith. Who cares? The only problem is, listen, that they expect you to climb your way up the mountain to God instead of seeing that God had to climb his way down the mountain to us. See, throughout the Bible, the gospel presents us, presents, excuse me, uh, the gospel is presented as the only hope for humanity. Every religion in the world tries to tell you the way to get to God. Only Christianity tells you that Jesus is the way to God. Only Jesus declares that he is the way, right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the answer, if Romans is right, and we believe it is, how can we be made right with God? How can we escape the wrath to come? How can we 
stand in the presence of this great God? How does Jesus Christ deal with the problem of our sin? Well, to answer that, we we need to understand first that, that we all have a basic need for forgiveness. And the gospel spells this out. You know, the primary symbol of Christianity has always been the cross, hasn't it? The death of Jesus Christ for our sins is at the very heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of everything we believe in this church. And the Bible teaches that Jesus dies so that God can actually forgive sins. In other words, we can't be forgiven. You know, the people who want to say, why doesn't God just forgive us? Forgive everybody and anybody. He can't forgive us unless Jesus dies. That's the message of Jesus. In fact, I want you to see this in Romans chapter 5, so flip back to Romans with me. Paul doesn't want to leave us all feeling the weight and guilt of condemnation, and neither do I, by the way. Paul wants to make sure we all understand the gravity of our sin and what it's leading towards, but he wants to remove that weight. He wants to show us that there is a way, and it's not dependent upon you clawing your way back to God. It's not dependent upon you being good enough or religious enough or praying enough or giving enough money. None of that will make a difference. And so we pick up in chapter 5, verse 6. Listen to this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, listen to this, from the wrath to come. This is it, this is the answer. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, we were once experiencing alienation, but because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, our sin problem can be dealt with and we can receive reconciliation. That is the hope of the gospel, amen? And yet so many people, they they listen to this and they see the gospel and they think that somehow this is unfair towards Jesus. In fact, some liberal commentators have suggested that this is some kind of a cruel hoax. They despise it and they try to discredit it and they, they call it something akin to divine child abuse. Why would Jesus have to die They say, why couldn't God just forgive us? Why can't God just accept everyone, or at least those who are sorry for their wrongs? Why don't we just focus on the life of Jesus and on his teachings rather than on his death? Why did Jesus have to die? That's a great question. Well, first, I think it's helpful to understand, even from a human standpoint, nobody just forgives anything. Forgiveness always requires absorbing an offense. Always, at a human level, in any kind of human transaction of forgiveness, there's always an absorbing of an offense. I have been hurt and I will absorb the offense and the hurt so that you and I can be reconciled in our relationship. Or we make somebody pay for their offense so that we can be reconciled into a relationship with them. Forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it so that you can reach out in love and seek that reconciliation. I mean, I think we know this experientially. Can you imagine if somebody came along and wanted to forgive some of your debts? Maybe you have a a large mortgage and you're looking at it and, 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 you know, every month you see that kind of ticking away and then somebody knocked on your door, maybe the manager of the bank, and said, hey, um, by the way, we've decided that we're just going to erase your entire mortgage. No more payments. We're going to forgive your debt. I mean, I think we'd be incredibly excited. I hope so. <laughs> they, they agreed. Well, listen, they agreed to pay what you owe. But we understand, listen, that that debt doesn't just disappear. It's not like somehow it's just vanished into thin air. Somebody has taken responsibility to absorb that debt, to pay it down in full. Maybe it's the bank manager himself says, look, I've got some extra money kicking around. I'd love to help you out. So I paid down your debt totally. Forgiveness means absorbing the debt of sin. So when God determines, listen, to forgive us rather than punish us, 
He went to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ and he died there. On the cross, God took all of our sin. This is so important to see and to understand. Listen, God is not like one of those primitive deities of those false religions who demanded our blood so that his wrath could be appeased. Instead, this is a God who becomes a human and he offers his own blood in order to honor, listen, moral justice, in order to honor his merciful love so that, listen, he can destroy evil without destroying us. That is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and theologians have broken this into two different categories, calling it Christ's passive obedience and Christ's active obedience. In other words, we need our our sin absorbed. That's Christ's passive obedience. On the cross, listen, he followed the will of God. He absorbed the full weight and penalty for our sin, but we needed something more than that. We needed our sins erased. We needed to be washed clean, but we also needed a righteous standing before God. In other words, we need to be made not so just that we've never sinned, but so that we've lived a perfect life, fully pleasing to God. And that's what theologians call Christ's active obedience. So you ever wonder why we have this picture of, of the Old Testament, perfect, spotless lamb that has to be sacrificed? Why is Jesus compared to this perfect, spotless lamb? Why did he have to live this perfect life? That's Christ's act of obedience where he comes to this earth as a man and he lives the life that you and I could never live. He earns for us supreme righteousness, total obedience to the will of God, never violating in thought, in behavior, in action, always perfect. And on the cross, we have this great exchange taking place where Jesus takes all of our sin, all of it, every last bit of our sin is paid for in full. Praise God, amen? Listen, but the beauty of it is this, then you get all of Christ's magnificent, perfect righteousness so that the unrighteous person can now stand as the righteous one of Jesus Christ before God. So that when you stand before God, listen, and we give an account Our life, the Bible says, is hidden in Christ before God. We stand before God, and while God should say, you are a wicked sinner, you have rebelled against me in every way imaginable, you've not worshipped me as the God that I am, Jesus Christ comes and he hides us underneath him, and he says, this one is mine, and what God sees is not our unrighteousness, but the perfect, beautiful righteousness of Jesus Christ. And on that basis, we are welcomed into the presence of God to enjoy, listen, the very reason that God created us, to know him, to love him, and to worship him to the fullest degree possible. So the cross is not, by the way, some lovely example of sacrificial love. Throwing your life away needlessly is not admirable. In fact, I would say it's foolish and it's wrong. But Jesus' death was absolutely necessary to rescue us. God's justice had to be satisfied. God cannot just wink at sin as if it somehow can just be swept under a rug. That would conflict so directly with his holiness, his righteousness, his justice. Since his own perfect character will not allow sin to go unpunished, he receives the punishment so that we can be forgiven. And listen, there are no other religions in the world that deal with sin this way. There are none. Every other religious system in the world tells you that you can do it. You can earn your way to God. You can be perfect enough. You can believe hard enough. You can give enough money. You can clean yourself up enough. And the the Bible tells us this, that there are only actually two religions. You want to know what the broad and the narrow way are? There is the religion of human achievement. That's the broad way. And then there is the religion of divine accomplishment. The gospel is exclusive. There are two paths, but there is only one way. It is either about what you can do or it is about what Jesus has already done. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I love this verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He becomes our substitute. So it's not simply, listen, that Jesus absorbs our sin. John Stott says it like this, the essence of sin is we have, we ha- excuse me, is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. Let me say that again. The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. 
while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be, and God puts himself where we deserve to be. There's no greater love than this, amen? Our hope is found not just in that Jesus died in our place, but that he rose from the dead. The resurrection is not some add-on to the gospel. The resurrection, Paul makes it very clear, is everything. If the resurrection never happened, then we, above all people, are to be considered foolish. Our faith is in vain. You see, the resurrection tells us that God accepted the full payment for our sin. It tells us that the greatest enemy we face, death, is overcome, that our Savior is a conquering king, and that he is the author and giver of life. The resurrection tells us that God can take our dead hearts that are dead in their trespasses and sin, and he can raise us to life, and he can give us new affections and new desires. He can break patterns of sin. He can destroy the strongholds that keep us back from worshiping him and knowing him to greater degrees. Christ declares in his resurrection that he is stronger. And where the effects of sin and death are seen and felt, the resurrection declares, listen, it points us, do you you see this? The resurrection points not only to our spiritual hope, it points us to our future reality. That one day, because of the way God created the universe to know and to love him and to worship him, and what the fall has produced in corrupting all of creation, and what redemption has accomplished, there is a future day coming of absolute, total restoration. God is going to make all things new. He's going to make all things right. And the resurrection points to a day when God is going to raise this dead, corrupt earth back to life. And we're going to enjoy what God has created the way he has created it to be enjoyed. In the fullness of his glory and his presence. Listen, but to receive that and to to know that and to experience that life and to not experience destruction, you need to see this lastly, the call of Christ. It's possible, listen, to know these truths. It's possible to have heard these truths time and time again. It's possible to have grown up in a Christian home and have just been bombarded with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but to never have really surrendered your life to him. And Jesus, turning your Bibles to Matthew 16, Jesus I love what he does here in this chapter, and I, I thought it would be helpful for us just to use this as kind of a paradigm for what God wants to ask every single human being. Back up to verse 13. It says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, who, who does everybody think I am? What do they believe about me? And here's what they said. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he says to them, and here's what God calls every one of us to ask of ourselves. And this is what he he beckons for us to answer. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? Who, Who do you right now say that Jesus is? Because everything, all of your future hinges upon this reality. But it's not just about what you say, it's about what you truly believe in your heart. And Peter gives for us the answer that ought to be the answer for every person in this place. And I pray it is. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that is so loaded with theological depth and truth. He's looking at Jesus and he's saying, you're the promised Messiah. You're the promised savior of the world. You're the one who has to take care of my sin problem. And you are the hope of the world. Peter, he cries from his heart, Lord, this is true. Regardless of what anybody else wants to think of you, this I know to be true. Jesus goes on to say, this is going to be the message upon which the church of Jesus Christ is built, upon which the salvation of the world depends. You know, it's possible maybe that as you've sat through even this series over the last three weeks, you still remain unconvinced Christianity may seem no more plausible to you now than when you first visited our church. Maybe it's been weeks, maybe it's been months, maybe it's even been years, but maybe, maybe right now God is working to open your eyes and your heart to the truth. Maybe for the first time you are beginning to understand 
not only that God exists, but you're beginning to understand that you were made to know Him. Maybe you've seen that the greatest obstacle that prevents you from experiencing this profound, life-giving relationship with the creator of the universe is sin. Your sin has alienated you from God. Your sin keeps you trapped in your own world where you believe you live autonomously and you believe you will not have to give an account to God. But God right now is beginning to allow those walls to crumble right before your very eyes. And maybe you see right now that you actually are deserving of God's judgment and punishment. But you also see that God stands, listen, here's the good part, that God stands and offers you forgiveness through Jesus Christ, through the cross where he paid for your sins in full. That you actually don't have to die in your sins and face God's wrath and instead you can know his great mercy and his great grace. Maybe for the first time you've begun to realize that the Christian gospel says that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. How awesome is that news? It's not like God was just simply looking going, maybe I'll come up with a plan. He looked and he said, I love you, I value you, and if I don't come and save you, you will never know me. God in his great mercy and his love comes for us. And I just, it's helpful just to stop and think. Listen, Jesus so often put people in the position, this was his goal, I believe, to make a determination about who he is. It's not enough to know what Jesus has done, you must make a personal decision and declaration about him. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Nobody who believes in him will be put to shame. God is willing to bestow all his riches on any, any who call upon his name, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And my prayer for you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, is that you right now will call out to God. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ. You see, the question then becomes more personal. personal. It's not just where are we going, broadly speaking. The question is where are you going? Where are you going? According to the Bible, that depends on how you respond to the truth of Jesus Christ. And most people begin their journey to God wanting something from Him. You know, they begin to explore, thinking, what am I going to be able to get from this deal? But everyone must come to grips with the fact that we owe Him our entire lives because of what He has done for us. He is our Creator, and for that fact alone, we owe Him absolutely everything. But listen, He is also our Redeemer. And he has rescued us at infinite cost to himself. And any heart that has come to its senses wants to surrender to someone who is not only all-powerful, but has proved that he will sacrifice anything for their good. This is the call of Christ. Complete and total surrender to him. Give up your life and follow after him. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You can strive to find your identity and meaning in this life apart from God, but in the end, you will ultimately lose your life. Or you can turn to him. You can find your identity, your purpose, your value, your meaning, in him alone, you can give up your life and then you can truly find it. This is an all or nothing choice that is forced upon us by the magnitude of the claims of Jesus Christ. It's a call to switch your fundamental allegiance to Jesus Christ, something that maybe some of you in here have never actually done. It's a call to count the cost. It's a call, as Jesus said, to believe in me. It's a call to believe, as Jesus said, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through him. It's a call to repent of your sins and to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, not tomorrow, today. Today, 
bow before the God and creator of this universe, fall on your face and embrace his grace that's for you. And if you've been wandering from him, listen, if, you've, if you're a Christian and you've just been so far from him, you've been living in sin, you need to see the same truth today for you. God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Like, what you've been doing isn't working. It's hollowing out your soul, but come to me. Let me fill you up. If you're thirsty, come and drink from me and I will give you all that you need. God says, come, come in repentance, come in faith, come believing that his grace is sufficient for you. You can know today how you got here. You can know today why you are here. And you can know today with assurance where you are going. All of this found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our declaration here at this church is this. We have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. The cross before us, the world behind us. We have found the way, the truth, and the life. And there is nothing that compares to Jesus. Father, we pray that you would encourage our hearts with these truths. Father, knowing how prone we are to wander, knowing, God, that even though we believe some of these truths, life is so hard, sin is so strong, our flesh, Lord, pulls us in so many different directions. But God, seeing that you are so much more powerful, you are so much more satisfying, God, give us faith to believe as Christians that you are sweeter. You are so so much sweeter than our sin. Give us faith to believe, Lord, that submitting and surrendering all to you is not restrictive. It doesn't prevent us from enjoying life. It frees us, Lord. It frees us to enjoy life as you have intended it to be enjoyed. It gives us, Lord, pleasures that we can only imagine and dream of. God, I pray for every heart in here that they would look to Jesus and say definitively that they have decided to follow Jesus. For those, Lord, who are wrestling, wrestling with you right now in this very moment, I pray, God, that you would break through, that, Lord, you would allow no obstacle to remain, but, Lord, you would crack the the foundation of their selfishness and their stubbornness and God you would drive the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into their hearts and you would show them how beautiful Jesus is you would show them Lord how needy they are you would show them Lord the consequences of their sin if Jesus doesn't come and intervene for them but you would show them Lord the grace of Jesus that he was willing to die out of his great love for them that he paid the price in full that he grants his righteousness to all those who believe so that we might stand before you Lord knowing where we are going to be with you. And may that be our greatest hope in this life. We await the day, Lord, where we will see your face. We will know you, where we will love you, we will worship you to the fullest degree, and we will enjoy every second of it. God, help us now in this life to not only sing these words, but to believe them in our hearts and to declare them with our lips. We have decided to follow Jesus. There is no turning back.